वो है दी आना अब एंड परफेक्टली सेल्फ इन लाइक वह नॉलेज हेलो टू यू फ्रेंड्स दिस इज ऑन एयर नंबर 127 and no self no soul no ego no me no you the impersonality or anatta doctrine particular to buddhism and you are indeed welcome thank you friends a simple way to establish awareness continuous awareness sati is clear comprehension Sampayanya Friends this highly advantageous practice can be undertaken by anyone at any time all day long in all situations and at all locations Therefore remember it and repeat it to yourself When walking one understands this body is walking when standing one knows this body is standing if sitting one knows this body is sitting while lying down one reflects this body is lying down when moving forward or returning one clearly comprehends exactly that when looking forward or looking backward one clearly comprehends exactly that when bending or extending a limb a leg an arm one clearly comprehends exactly that when dressing in clothes or carrying things one clearly comprehends exactly that when eating drinking or chewing one clearly comprehends exactly that when defecating or urinating one clearly comprehends exactly that when walking standing or sitting one clearly comprehends exactly that when falling asleep or waking up one clearly comprehends exactly that when talking or dwelling in silence one clearly comprehends exactly that this rational and alert attention is thus a cause of ultra clear cut acute comprehension when continuous awareness is established in this way then it can prevent all sloppy mistakes and their painful after effects In this way where it does clear comprehension lead to reduced frustration and gaining of a new satisfaction if correctly cultivated and made much of this practice will be for all beings welfare and happiness for a long long time why so because clear comprehension sampayanna purifies the purpose the suitability the domain 
and the unconfused, unified focus of any activity. The Long Speeches of the Buddha, Tika Nikaya, number 22. Thank you. Hello to you, friends. This is indeed Dhamma on Air, number 127, recorded in Denmark in early May, just before Vesak, on the Verhoi Forest on Western Sealand. And there are three questions, as usual, circling around uh, the Asmimana, the conceit that I am, and the Sakaya Ditti. The, group, the view that there is a personality, that there is an I, a me, an ego inside this frame of form, feeling, perception, mental construction and consciousness. But first, the classical intro. Namo, Tasso, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Worthy, Anabo, and perfectly self-enlightened was the best Buddha indeed. The first question goes like this. Question 382. What is the comic effect of killing animals? For example, driving over a cat and killing it. Yes, in general, uh, the, the effect of killing is short lifetime. This means that one's own lifetime becomes shortened. However, in this case, driving over a cat uh, is usually not something that you do intentionally. And the same thing, stepping on an ant and so on. So unintentional killing will not have any effect. Because why? Because it's the intention, the chetana behind the action that determines the karmic outcome. That is to say, accidental killing, like for example, hitting a cat that suddenly rush out the street in front of your car. Uh, this doesn't count as killing in the Buddhist sense. This counts as an accident. So this will have no karmic imprint because there's no intention. Actually, most drivers, I think, in this situation wants to uh, drive around the cat, if possible, by any means. And then saving the cat's life. And this will then have the, whether it's killed or not, will have the opposite effect of prolonging their own life and making other beings try to save them. So, uh, Killing animals in general, if it's intentional, that is to say hunting, fishing, smashing uh, uh, mosquitoes, using pesticide spray, uh, using poison for uh, rodents like rats, uh, all sorts of intentional butchering, for example, intentional killing, this is connected with a short lifetime in your, this life and in future lives also. So basically, it's, uh, the comic effect is an automatic echo that uh, limits uh, degrees of freedom that the intenter or the intentional activity, the address of the intentional activity has to choose from, the probability distribution it has to choose from in the future. So that is to say, if long life is taken, then is long life taken out of this probability distribution, this activity of choosing to kill has in the future. So it, it, it's, it works like a mirror, it's, a, it's an echo, it's an automatic thing. has nothing to do with any judge or any fairness or it's a natural law just like gravity. That just in this case, 
is expanded to mental phenomena. So again, I said, it's, it's, it's a limitation of the probability distribution. Let's say, for example, uh, the killer, uh, before the life has a probability distribution of being 90, uh, 95 and 100 years in the next life. So this is three possibilities. Huh? Actually, that's as a probability distribution much wider. There's hundreds, hundreds of probability, of hundreds of probabilities that are depending upon whether uh, he drives a car or not, he has a sickness or not, and so on. So they are dependent upon other things also. But in this case, let's say he 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 kills uh, ten cats intentionally, then the probability distribution of being 90, uh, 95 and hundred years, it will lose the two probabilities of being 100 years and 95 years, and he can only be 90 years in the next life. So it's a limitation of the probabilities in the future outcomes for this particular being. Soon it starts raining, so we'll, we'll hurry up. Question 383. Why did the Holocaust happen in this samsara? Yeah, Holocaust... Uh, I don't know, I have to say, uh, because I cannot see back in the future what uh, the Jews did, but this was this uh, horrible uh, killing of millions of Jews uh, during the Second World War. And there is a story that somehow illustrates why something can, like that can happen, uh, because it happens for Buddha's own Sakyan family uh, during Buddha's lifetime. And he tries to save them two times, there were other, another, another king that uh, had a wife that also was angry with the Buddha, uh, and they went to uh, into war with the Buddhist family. And two times he averted the war, but a third time he couldn't avert the war. And he saw that he foresaw that. Look into the future and say, can I, can I limit, or can I, kind of like, save my my family, the rest of my Sakyan clan, uh, from being killed by this warring king? And then he saw no. Why so? Because in a future time, or in a past time, sorry, in a past time, long before several lifetimes before, this Sakuran clan has uh, poisoned the river and thereby uh, killed a lot of neighbors. Uh, actually, this tribe that later on came uh, towards them and wants to uh, have war with them and actually killed uh, the whole family and the whole tribe, the Sakuran tribe, which was the Buddhist family, a small kingdom up in on the edge of Nepal between uh, India and Nepal. So uh, this was one reason. Uh, I cannot see what the Jews might have done or not done, but from this whole area, and so it is also now, now the Middle East, is a lot of tribes, and there has been for a long time a lot of small tribes that has been warring uh, against each other. And I was, when I was reading Latin in old days, we read about something called the Punian Wars, and there was War One, War Two, War Three, War Twenty-Five, and so on. And it was all about these wars that these small uh, tribes continually has against each other. And it could be that the Jews, as a tribe, as a very uh, close tribe, has had a war with another uh, another tribe. Could be, in this case, somebody who living up in Germany, uh, but they could have lived another place at that time, and uh, have killed a lot of people. And that's why the the Germans came to Warsaw during Second World War. Another complicating factor could be uh, the killing of Jesus, because. The Jews were, as far as I know the history of, of the Bible, involved in the sense that they uh, asked the Romans uh, to uh, grab the, the, the 
was a decent Jewish priest, but I think many Jewish people agreed uh, that that Jesus was a kind of like a fake uh, prophet, and he and there was some uh, probably some envy towards him because he could make uh, miracles, and so the Jewish priests, the high priests, they they couldn't make miracles, and then there was probably some jealousy there. Whatever the case may be, then if all the Jews in that particular tribe agreed that uh, Jesus should be set up and delivered to the Romans and thereby crucified. And if Jesus was a Bodhisattva, and I think there's much to say that yeah, he actually was a Bodhisattva, because he had many, that is to say, a Buddha to be. Uh, not yet a Buddha, and maybe not even a noble at that time, but uh, possibly a very, very good being. And if you touch very good beings and that are on the edge to being noble, then uh, it's a very forceful response, karmic response. And this was might have it because Jesus was not only good to other beings, he would also be good to the Jews, to anyone whatsoever, to any all living beings. Uh, so in this sense, I, I, I think that Jesus was a righteous prophet. Uh, uh, what, what might light in his history before this that, that earned him the karma of being crucified, uh, I don't know. Uh, but this can has can has be also can he, he could have been a king that has crucified others because they were robbers or rapists or whatever. So this might be a complicating factor. So I think there's two factors. Usually there's many more than two factors going into this uh, dreadful story of Holocaust. Raining, but still we can uh, we can go on a little bit. Could mastery of the Dhamma be able uh, so that one have trained and cultivated to still radiate happiness and love in the moments of mass despair and suffering? Yes, uh, it can actually. There's this simile of the saw. And this, uh, the simile of the saw goes like this, that uh, is Buddha said that if five robbers comes towards you and uh, wants to kill you, then with the two-handled saw and so cut off your legs and arms one by one, then it's still possible to beam loving-kindness towards them. And uh, this is a very good example, this simile of the saw we generally use. Uh, it was given forward in, in a sutta called uh, Matimanikaya number 21, the Kaka Chupama Sutta, the parable of the saw. And there, a, a maid that has a mistress uh, that was had this reputation that she was very mild, uh, she wants to test this mistress. And she wants, she uh, then uh, went up late for three mornings in a row. And then the mistress got uh, irritated by that uh, accumulatively and then ended up banging her head with a stick. And then she, she spread this reputation, ah, as. As, as long as everything is good, then my mistress, uh, she is well and nice, Miss Vitehika. She is sweet and calm. But if something goes wrong, if I get up too late of bed, then she will punish me. And so the Buddha say that uh, it is not only under good circumstances one should be good, it's also under difficult circumstances one should be good. Otherwise this goodness, this kindness of heart, is not worth much.
question B, could mastery over the Dhamma be so that one who trained and cultivated could still radiate happiness and love in the moments of mass despair and suffering? Yes, um, this is possible. I don't say it's easy, but Buddhists say it is possible. And that's the simile of the soul and also the only son example. That uh, one should love others as a mother loves her only son. And that's a steep order, that's a tall order, but nevertheless, it's a good image to have in front of you. Imagine this uh, woman with her only son, her only baby son, and how she adores and feels genuine love towards this baby. So one should also feel genuine love towards these other beings. Why so? Because one can see that they are, they are caught in samsara. They are helpless in samsara. Because they don't see the Four Noble Truths, because they don't see the past, because they don't even know about reincarnation. And so they are caught up in samsara, they go around and round, and come to birth, aging, sickness and death, and ignorance, again and again and again and again and again. And this is enough to muster one's compassion and thereby after one's love, genuine love towards these beings. School children. A, so, a, but nevertheless, there's a simile of the soul, and it comes in, in Majimanikaya number 21, which I will uh, read up a extract of, uh, because it's very long, but nevertheless, it's Majimanikaya, which you see here, number 22, and it's called the Kakup Chubama Sutta, the parable of the soul. And it's translated in this case by Acharya Buddha Rakita, and it's from 2006. The Buddha said, Fakuna, if anyone were to reproach you to your face, uh, then even, even then you should abandon those urges and thoughts which are worldly. There, Fakuna, you should train yourself thus. Neither shall my mind be affected by this, nor shall I give vent to evil words, but I shall remain full of concern and pity, full of compassion, with a mind of love, and that should not give in to hatred. This is how, Faguna, you should train yourself. Faguna, if anyone were to give you a blow with a hand, or hit you with a clod of earth, or with a stick, or with a sword, then even then should you abandon those urges and thoughts which are worldly, that is to say, thoughts of revenge. There, Faguna, you should train yourself thus, neither shall my mind be affected by this, nor shall I give vent or evil words, but I shall remain full of concern and pity, with a mind of love, and I shall not give in to hatred. This is how, Faguna, you should train yourself. And then the Buddha, he tells about an example of our mistress called Vidihika. The story of the mistress Vidihika. In the past monks, in this very Savati city, there was a mistress, a lady, called Vidihika. And monks, this good reputation has spread about this mistress Vidihika. This mistress Vidihika is gentle. Thus, monks, the, the servant Kali, her lady servant, got up late next morning. And monks, then it occurs to this maid servant, though she does not have anger then, now she has anger now. Because Lady she asked her, why do you come up late? Why doesn't you do your job? You should, you should come up early and do your job properly. And so she said to this lady, said, why do I test my lady further? And then she got up even later than before. And then Lady Vika again reproached her and become angry. And then uh, she got up late even more. And then in the end, Lady Vika now very impatient, she took a doorbar, which is a fairly heavy thing, and banged her over her head so the blood come running. 
And then she, uh, uh, because she, she was entered, then this uh, servant Kali, with her head injured and blood oozing, went about among the neighbors and shouting, Look, sirs, at the deed of the gentle one. Look, sirs, at the de deed of the meek one. Look, sirs, at the deed of the calm one. How can she saying to her own mason, You got up late, lady, angry and displeased, having taken a doorbar, giving me a blow on the head and injured my head. So there, the reputation of her lady, which was that she was meek, gentle uh, and kind, this was blown out because suddenly she had banged because her servant got up three times late to test her. She has banged her in her head because of these circumstances. Then once this ill repute spread about the mistress Vidiga. The mistress Vidiga is violent. She's arrogant. She's not calm. Uh, actually, a rich man uh, today in Denmark uh, got, uh, he was a noble and he has several medals and then the medals was taken back by the queen. Why so? Because one day he went by his car and he went into a cycle race and he was, uh, the road was closed, but then he still went into the uh, closed roads despite uh, people knocking his door window and say, ah, you cannot come in here because there's a bicycle race. Can't you see there's was signs and so on set up? But he said, no, 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 and pushed him away with his car. And uh, because of this arrogant uh, thing of doing this, pushing them away with his car, then he went to court. He was uh, turned into police. He went to court and he was, uh, he had a, got a fine. And then afterwards the queen said, ah, now you cannot be a member of our order. You cannot be a noble. And then she took her medals uh, from her, from him. And this was uh, published very widely. So though he was known to be a friend of the former prince and uh, was a noble that has been to the queen and queen uh, time in and time again, he was, his, all his medals was taken from him because of one action of being very arrogant and in his car pushing somebody uh, away where, which was standing and was, was watching over a bicycle race. Another example. In the same way, monks, some monks here is very gentle, weak, very meek and very calm, so long as disagreeable ways of speech do not assail them. But when disagreeable ways of speech do assail the monk, it is then that the monk is to be judged whether he is gentle, meek or calm, monks. I don't call that monk dutiful, who is dutiful on account of the requisite tickets. If the robe, amphoot, lodging and medicaments are fine, then he falls into sort of dutifulness. And why so, monk? Because that monk fails to get the requisites uh, and the monks, if that happens, that he gets no food, no lodging and no food, then he ceases to be dutiful. So it's only because he gets nice food, then he also do does his duty. But if he don't get nice food, then he doesn't do his duty. But monks, whichever monk out of reverence for the teaching, out of respect for the teaching, for the Dhamma, out of dedication to the Dhamma, shows showing honor to the teaching and giving regard to the teaching, comes to be dutiful and is keeping with the norms of dutifulness, him I do consider to be dutiful. Therefore, monks, you should consider yourself only out of reference for the teaching, out of respect for the teaching, out of dedication to the Dhamma, showing honor to the Dhamma and giving regard to the Dhamma, shall we become dutiful, shall we be keeping in with the norms of dutifulness. Thus, indeed, should we train ourselves. So out of respect for the Dhamma, one should do the duties as a monk. And I think this can be extrapolated also to lay people. 
out of respect for the Dhamma, for the teaching, which leads to deathlessness, the highest of the door, then one should be dutiful and do one's services. Again, monks, there are these five way modes of speech which people might use when speaking to them. Speech that is timely or untimely, true or false, gentle or harsh, with a good or harmful motive, or with a loving heart or hostility. Monks, some might speak to you using speech that is timely or untimely, truth or falsely. Some might speak to you gently or harshly. They might speak to you with a good motive or with a harmful motive. On all occasions, monks, you should train yourself thus. Neither shall our minds be affected by this, nor shall, uh, for this matter, shall we give vent to evil words, but we shall remain full of concern and pity, with a mind of love, and we shall not give in to hatred. On the contrary, we should live projecting thoughts of universal love to that very person, making him as well as the whole world the object of our thoughts of universal love. Thoughts that have grown great, exalted, measureless, infinite. We should dwell radiating these thoughts which are void of hostility and ill will. In this way, monks, should you train yourself. So, this is a positive response of love. He gives some other examples. He says, he gives the example of the great earth. Suppose, monks, a person were to come holding a hoe and a basket and were to say, I shall make this great earth earthless. And then he would strew earth here and there, spit here and there, urinate here and there, and would say, be earthless, be earthless. What do you think, monks? Would this person render this earth, earth earthless? No, indeed not, most venerable sir. And why? Because this great earth, most venerable sir, is deep, it is without measure. It is, cannot possibly be turned earthless. On the contrary, that person would only reap weariness and frustration. So if the person, he's, he comes and urinate on the earth and digs in it with a hoe, and uh, dust a little bit here, dust a little bit there. That is, that is to say, it, it's a simile of this person who is trying to offend one who is noble, who is kind. He cannot do it. Because this uh, infinite kind person is infinite. It, he's measureless. This love and this kindness is measureless. It cannot be touched. Just like this earth, this mighty earth cannot be made earthless by chattering about uh, and urinating here and there. It cannot be made earthless. Another example he gives in the same sutta is empty space. Suppose, monk, a person went to approach you carrying uh, paints, lacquer, turmeric, indigo, carmine, and were to say, I will draw this picture. I will make this painting appear as empty space. What do you think, monks? Could he make this painting appear under this empty space? No, indeed not, most venerable sirs. So it's a man he liked to paint on empty space. Uh, he, had, he has a lot of paint, but he cannot paint on empty space. And why not? Because this empty space, most venerable sir, is formless and invisible. He cannot possibly draw a picture or make a painting appear on this empty space. On the contrary, that person will only reap weariness and frustration. So again, uh, he's, he gives a simile of empty space that one comes a person who wants to offend you and he's like to paint you with painting. But if you are like empty space, if this mind is like empty space, then nothing can be painted on, nothing can be accused upon it, nothing can be projected upon it, because it's like empty space. It's just like empty space.
Then he also gave the example of the river Ganges. Suppose monks among a person were to come holding a burning grass torch and were to say, with this birthing grass torch, I shall set fire to this and scorch this river Ganges. What do you think, monks? Could that person set fire to and scorch the river Ganges with a grass torch? No. Indeed not, most venerable sir. And why not? Because, most venerable sir, the river Ganges is deep and without measure. It is not possible to set fire to and scorch the river Ganges with a burning grass torch. On the contrary, that person will only reap weariness and frustration. And so, uh, this Ganges, this deep flowing river Ganges, can be like the goodwill of the noble person. It cannot be scorched by a single grass torch. The last example he gives is the catskin bag. Catskin bag. Suppose monks were a supple and silky leather bag made of catskin that has been beaten, tanned, cured and fully processed and made completely free of all seizures and wrinkles. Then a man were to come with a stick or mallet and say, with this stick or mallet I should make uh, greases and wrinkles in this subtle and silky catskin bag, which has been beaten and tanned, cured and fully processed, and made free of greases and wrinkles. What do you think, monk? Would that person with a stick or mallet make grease and wrinkles in that subtle and silky catskin bag, which has been beaten, tanned, cured and fully processed, and made free of greases and wrinkles? No, sir. Why not? Because, Venerable Sir, that subtle uh, and silky leather bag made of catskin has been beaten, tanned, cured and fully processed and made free of greases and wrinkles. It is not possible to take greases and wrinkles in it with a stick or mallet. On the contrary, he will reap only his fair share of weariness and frustration. I don't know whether you know catskin. It's very, very soft if it's been treated like this. And you cannot make any wrinkles in it, it, it by no means. It's soft, adaptable, warm, and same thing should the heart of the noble be that uh, has no place for revenge or ill will, even those towards those who are offending him or her. So you should make your mind like a catskin bag. Again, if you go through the examples, you should one should make mind like the great earth, because it cannot be made earthless, it cannot be changed. And one should make it like the deep Ganges, because it cannot be affected, it cannot be scorched. One should be, make it like empty space, because it cannot be painted upon, it cannot be projected upon, accused upon. And then one should make it like this subtle and soft catskin bag, because it's very soft and adaptable and warm, and cannot be made with wrinkles. Then there come this famous example that has given name to the Sutta, namely the example of the, the simile of the soul. In the same way, monks, others may use these five modes of speech when speaking to you. Speech that is timely or untimely, true or false, gentle or harsh, with a good or harmful motive, or with a loving heart and hostility, or hostility. In this way, monks, you should train yourself. Neither shall our minds be affected in this way. By this, nor for this matter should we give vent to evil words, but we shall remain full of concern and pity, with a mind of love, and we shall not give in to hatred. On the contrary, we should live and persist projecting thoughts of universal love to that very person, making him as well as the whole world the object of our thoughts of universal love. Thoughts that have grown great, exalted and measureless, we should dwell radiating these thoughts which are void of hostility and ill will. It is in this very way that we should train ourselves.
Ah, very well, said the Buddha. Then he gave this parable of the saw, the symbol of the saw. Monks, even if Vantage was to savagely sever you, cut you up limb by limb with a double-handled saw, even then, whenever you harbor ill will towards this, they will not be upholding my teaching. Monks, even in such a situation, you should train yourself thus. Neither shall our minds be affected by this, nor shall, for this matter, shall we give vent to evil words. But we shall remain full of concern and pity, with a mind of love, and we shall not give in to hatred. On the contrary, we should live projecting thoughts of universal love to those very persons, making them, as well as the whole world, the object of our thoughts of universal love. Thoughts that have grown great, exalted, measureless. We should dwell radiating these thoughts with a void of hostility and ill will. In this very way, monks, should we train ourselves. Monks, if you should keep this instruction of the symbol of the soul constantly in your mind, do you see any modes of speech, subtle across, that you could not endure? No, Lord. Therefore, monks, you should keep this instruction of the symbol of the soul constantly in mind. That will conduce to your well-being and happiness for a long time. That is what the Blessed One said. Delighted, those monks rejoiced in what the Blessed One had taught. Symbol of the soul. So, again, if we sub sum up, it is not during easy times one can evaluate one's own mind or others' mind, whether they have aggression or hate in them. It is during difficult times where one is provoked, like the lady who was provoked by her own servant getting up deliberately to test her three times in a row late. And then it ended up her, uh, she ended up banging her on the head. The same thing, there was recently a a photo model, very famous photo model, that had a housemaid, which also displeased her, and she banged her on the head with a shoe, and she went into, had to go to court uh, several times and uh, get subjected to uh, violence and come into newspaper stories, even though she was a very beautiful woman and famous for her beauty, then she suddenly get these bad press stories because of having uh, banged her housemaid on the head with a shoe in, in displeasure and anger. And the Buddha said this can be prevented if people speech to one timely or untimely, uh, not uh, truly or falsely, aggressively, then uh, it can be prevented this anger uh, and evil words and actions can be prevented by making the mind like the great earth. So it cannot be dusted away by only small provocations like dusting it in the surface or urinating on it. It should be made like empty space because you cannot paint any accusation on empty space. It should be made like the great river Ganges because the great river Ganges cannot be swept away by just a little bit of a provocation. Or it should be made like a catskin bag because the catskin bag cannot be made full of wrinkles. It cannot be provoked uh, if you come with and beat it up with a stick. This was the simile of the saw from the Majima Nikaya number 21. This is a way to, uh, to make the mind train over a long time to make the mind uh, radiate happiness and love in the moments of mass despair and suffering. Uh, difficult, but not impossible. Then comes we to the last question, question 384. 
Is it due to the five hindrances that one accepts belief in an internal soul without investigating? Yes, it, it is uh, indeed so. Uh, what are the five hindrances? Uh, they are sense desire, karma chanta, ill will, vyapata, lethargy and laziness, tinamitta, restlessness and regret, uddhacha kukucha, and skeptical doubt, vichikicha, in the Buddha. It is because of these five hindrances being in the mind that one cannot see reality as it really is, and thereby that there is no self, no soul. What is the best way uh, to handle such statements of that this is a soul, a me, an ego, when a person starts talking about this soul or their God? Yeah, one can ask them both regarding their own soul and an external God, Isara, as uh, an almighty God, uh, which is called Isara in Bali, and then show it to me. Show me your soul, show me your ego, or show me your God. And then uh, these beings who claim the existence of these hypothetical uh, entities or persons, they will fall short of being able to show it directly. Because nowhere inside or outside can you find any soul in an ego, in a me. This is actually, this, the ego, the soul, the me is a projection that the being, because it ceases seemingly separate from uh, surroundings, when it looks itself in the mirror brushing teeth, then it says, ah, I'm different from my surroundings. And this way I'm different is persists from one day to another day. But it fails to see that there are changes in these states. And the Buddha say there are 20 ways of false identification. Either you say, uh, you are identifying with the body and say, I, this I, hypothetical I, have a body. Or it uh, is a body. Or it uh, is inside the body. Or it is outside the body. Emanating, so to speak. And the same thing you can say with feeling, perception, mental construction and consciousness. You can say, this, this consciousness is me. Or I own a consciousness. I'm inside the consciousness, or the consciousness is inside me. Same thing with feeling, with perception, mental construction. Perception will also be, past perception will be something like memories. Or one will say, I, I'm a mixture of this, this physical appearance, and then my feelings, my perceptions, my mental constructions, and my consciousness. But neither is the case, actually. Neither is the case. Why is not the case? Because if there was any same I, me, or self, any, in, in these five things, form, feeling, perception, mental construction, and consciousness, then they should remain the same in order for the self to be the same. And they don't remain the same from one moment to the next moment. They are constantly changing. Your body is changing. You're breathing in and out. You're taking molecules in and uh, breathing molecules out. Uh, your feelings are, whether you have pleasure or pain, this changes from one moment to the next moment, very easy to observe during meditation. Your perception, your experiences, uh, changes from one moment to the next moment. And your mental constructions, your hopes, plannings, and they also change from one moment to the next moment. If it starts raining out of the forest, then one has to come into the temple. Same thing with consciousness, whether you use visual consciousness, auditory consciousness, or tactile consciousness is changes from one moment to the next moment. So if there's nothing that's the same in these five things, then they cannot contain any same self, any identity, any identical identity. 
And the self has to be identical with itself from one moment to the next moment to be a proper self. Otherwise, you have to admit that the self is changing. If the self is changing, is the self becoming into another self? No, that's absurd, huh? Then one should have a new self in each moment, and a new name, and a new personality. So this is not feasible. It's more better described as a, as a five streams of, of development. That there's a body that undergoes development, there's feeling that undergoes development, and consciousness that undergoes development. And this is this stream of development that is individual, like a river flowing with some colors and some solvents in it. It's an individual river. It is not the same as other rivers, but it's still a flowing river that's never the same. Uh, except that it has the same name, but that's only a convention. Uh, so this is a little bit difficult to see, but uh, after looking at it uh, thoroughly and also speculating, where is this ego? Can I, is it inside the body somewhere? Uh, or is it inside the feelings or inside this, all these mental phenomena which are momentary, which only exist one moment? Then one realizes, ah, they, they are not in there because they, they only exist one moment. Then this I, this ego, this what some uh, other religions think that it's an eternal soul, here under Hindus and also Christians. It's the same soul, so to speak. Uh, this, this cannot be, uh, this cannot be maintained because this, where, where should it be among these things that are constantly changing, constantly renewed into something otherwise than they were before? How to get rid of these five mental hindrances that blocks insight? Yeah, there is this starving uh, way of starvation, one can say. And this Buddha explained it this way. What, friends, is the starvation that prevents the arising of sense desire, karma chanda, the first mental hindrance, and which blocks growth of already arising sense desire? Then it is the frequent and careful attention to the disgusting features of all things. This starvation prevents sensual lust from arising and reducing, reduces already present greed. So this is the same as saying, okay, uh, instead of seeing only the delicious, the attractive aspect of things, then one can look also at the internal, uh, disgusting aspects of things. Let's, let's take two examples. A dead thing, a sport car, for example, it always uh, rusts. Uh, cheese is made out of bacteria, it's basically rotten milk. So instead of saying delightful cheese, you look at it as a rotten milk. Instead of saying a perfect sport car, then you say, ah, it's something that is crumbling, that is becoming dust. And sexual object also, yes, there's the, the young lady, the young man, they are very delicious, uh, but the uh, old lady, old man, they are not so delicious, and they become disgusting over time, in an increasing degree. So uh, there's always both attractive, neutral, and disgusting, repulsive aspects of things. If you want to decrease sense desire, kamachanda, then one should turn attention to the disgusting aspects of things, not the attractive aspects of things. The exact opposite is it with anger uh, and ill will. Friends, what is the starvation that prevents the arising of ill will and which also hinders aggravation and inflation of already arising ill will? Yes, it is frequent and careful a rational attendant to universal friendliness, to metta. This starvation prevents aversion from arising and evaporates already present anger. That is to say, uh, if one uh, turns, redirects attention 
doing an angry moment to universal friendliness. Then the universal friendliness, needless to say, will evaporate right on the spot. And if one keeps redirecting mind to this universal friendliness, then the tendency to uh, ill will to arise again will become less and less and less and less and less and less. Until one attains metta cedovimutti, the deliverance of mind uh, through friendliness. So this is a cedovimutti, a release of mind through friendliness. Then it's irreversible, then one cannot become angry again. This is the way. What about lethargy and laziness? What is the starvation that prevents arising of lethargy and laziness? and which also eliminates already present lethargy and laziness. It is the attention to the three elements of initiative, launching and endurance. This starvation prevents sloth from arising and stops already present laziness. So uh, this is a very good thing to remember when this laziness is there. There's the element of initiative that is starting to take the initiative. It's a mental thing. Then there's the element of launching then it's starting the action of actually doing it, whether it's walking or race up from the sofa or starting doing the dish. Then there's the element of endurance, completing the task, whatever the task may be. Don't give up before it's complete, before it's 100%. Again, the, turning rational attention again and again to initiative, launching and endurance. That's the way out of sloth and torpor, laziness and lethargy. And what is the starvation that prevents arising of restlessness and regret, and also retards escalation of already present restlessness and regret? It is frequent attention to this sweet, calm, and peaceful tranquility of mind. This starvation prevents upsetting the mind and reduces anxiety and worry. So one say, ah, this is conditioned arising, this restlessness and regret, this worry. Uh, but this equanimity, this calm, this tranquility. How sweet is that? How nice is that? And then eventually the mind will become calmed down. Eventually the mind will become calmed down. Again and again one turns, returns attention to this calmness of the mind and calmness of the body. The last thing is this doubt and uncertainty. How do you uh, prevent that? What is the starvation that prevents arising of doubt and uncertainty? That is to say, also skeptical doubt in the Buddha's method of mental purification, and which also stops proliferation of already present doubt and uncertainty. It is frequent, careful, and rational attention of these four dualities. There are advantageous and disadvantageous states. There are blamable and blameless states. There are ordinary and unexalted states and they are bright and dark mental states. Again, four evaluations, whether something is disadvantageous or advantageous, whether it's blamable or blameless, that is other people's evaluation. First, it's your own evaluation regarding your own level of knowledge at that particular time. Is this advantageous, advantageous or detrimental? Is it blamable by others? by the Buddha, for example, or one's Buddhist teacher, or one's friends, or one's mother or father, or is it blameless? Is it exalted, exalted on a higher level, or is it base, is it primitive? 
This is the third evaluation. Is it on the bright side or on the dark side? Very narrow evaluation. So this evaluation will make doubt and uncertainty go away. It will make it disappear. It will blow it out of uh, existence. And this is from uh, Samyutta Nikaya, Book of Five, Section 45 on the links. The nutriments, it's called. What is nutriments to these five hindrances? Irrational attention. If the one is uh, promoting irrational attention to to the attractive aspects of things, then one's desire uh, rise up right there. If it's not there already, and if it's there already, then it grows bigger. If one keeps noting and only noticing the repulsive aspects of things, yeah, well then one's aversion, one's ill will arise right there. One's opposed to things. And then also ill will that is already present, this will grow. If one is, uh, is keeping, uh, turning attention to this laziness and lateness after meals, one becomes sleepy and so on, then laziness arrives right there. And if there's laziness present, then it becomes even greater. If one uh, keeps agitating the mind and looking at the agitated mind, then, uh, then it becomes even more restless and even more full of regrets. And if one turns attention often and irrationally to things that are doubtful, that are, you cannot determine them. They could be this, they could be that, they could be many ways. Nobody knows. For example, whether the universe is eternal or not, and whether the universe is infinite or not, whether a, the Buddha exists after death, whether he do not exist after death, whether he both exists and not exist after death, whether he do exist or neither, uh, whether he neither do not exist nor do he uh, exist after death. This is questionable questions. Huh? You cannot determine it. And so it's only pure speculation. However much you speculate about it, you just generate a forest, an infinite forest on false views, not based on evidence. And so this skeptical doubt and uncertainty will grow, 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 grow. So this is a way to get the five hindrances out by starvation. I made both a, a video and an audio about it. This is called Dhamma on Air number 14 uh, on the five hindrances. And they are on uh, my SoundCloud profile as Dhamma on Air number 14 audio. And it's on uh, my YouTube channel as Dhamma on Air number 14, the five hindrances. And then enough for today. I will say thank you for your advantageous attention, your clever consideration and your kind contribution. Thanks to all Dayakas, also supporting seeding the Dhamma here in Denmark. Thank you to the supporters and the donors and the helpers of whatever nationality and at whatever location. Thank you very much. And again, we have to make the Classical intro exit stanza namo tassu bhagavato arahato samma sampudassa worthy, honorable, and perfectly self enlightened was the blessed Buddha. And may you indeed have a nice day. Friends, on the essential and crucial foundation 
for all mental purity, the blessed Buddha once said this. Bhikkhus and friends, there are these four foundations of awareness. What for? When a bhikkhu keenly contemplates one, any body, just as a transient form, two, any feeling, just as a passing sensation, three, any mind, just as a momentary mood, four, any phenomena, just as a flickering mental state. While always acutely aware and clearly comprehending, he thereby removes any urge, envy, jealousy, frustration and discontent rooted in this world. These are the four foundations of awareness. How, friends, does one view anybody only as a form, while always acutely alert and clearly comprehending, thus removing any lust, urge, envy, frustration and discontent rooted in this world. Yet the intelligent bhikkhu, he keeps contemplating and regarding any body as an alien frame of filthy, foul form, as something bound to emerge, decay and vanish, not as mine, belonging to me, or being a part of myself. In this way the intelligent bhikkhu keeps reviewing any and all body, whether internal or external, whether his own or others, and he notes the cause of its arising and the cause of its ceasing, or he just knows there is this body. In this way he comes to live not clinging to and independent of anybody. This is one way to contemplate the body only as a transient form. Another way is to gain awareness of the body only as a form by awareness of breathing. Or he gains awareness of the body by noting the four postures when walking, standing, sitting or lying down. He notes that he is walking, standing, sitting or lying down. However his body is placed, he notes it to be exactly so. Or he gains awareness by clear comprehension of all actions. When walking, one understands this body is walking. When standing, one knows this body is standing. If sitting, one knows this body is sitting down. When lying down, one reflects this body is lying down. When moving forward or returning, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When looking forward or backward, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When bending or extending a limb, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When dressing or carrying things, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When eating, drinking, chewing or tasting, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When defecating or urinating, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When walking, standing or sitting, one clearly comprehends exactly that. When falling asleep or waking up, 
one clearly comprehends exactly that. When talking or dwelling in silence, one clearly comprehends exactly that. Or one gains awareness of the body by scanning the 32 internal organs. Or one gains body awareness by analysis of it into the four great elements. This body is only a cluster of solidity, fluidity, heat and motion. Or one gains body awareness by the nine corpse contemplations. Remaining thus attentive and enthusiastically noting any memories or motivations related to the household life are left. And with their total removal, one's mind gathers, settles inwardly, and dives into unification. In this way, the intelligent bhikkhu keeps reviewing any and all body, whether internal or external, whether own or others, and he notes the cause of its arising and the cause of its ceasing. Or he just noticed there is a spot. In this way, he comes to live not clinging to and independent of anybody. This is the way to contemplate the body only as a transient, alien, remote, and ownerless frame of form. A complex structure of disgusting things, a constructed accumulation of putrid, rotting and decaying slime, and a painful, restricting and diseasing burden one have to carry around. This is how the intelligent bhikkhu develops mindfulness, awareness, by focusing on the body as a deadly form of matter as something bound to decay and vanish, not as mine, not belonging to me, or not belonging to herself, not as lasting, stable or safe, not as pleasant beauty or happiness, not as pleasant beauty or any form of happiness. The reward is fearlessness of death, and thereby fearlessness of all. Without fear, there is a mental elation of gladness and free joy. It detaches and relinquishes from body and form, and thereby it frees. One sees this body just as a painted puppet, a chain of bones plastered by skin with nine oozing holes, a heap of sores, and rotten excrement with evil intentions. Just as a painted puppet. This is how one gains awareness by noting the body only as a full frame. This is from the group sayings of the Buddha, the Samyutta Nikaya, Book 5, Chapter 47, on the foundations of awareness, Sati Patana. Thank you. Namo. Tassu. Bhagavato. Arahato. Samma Samputassa. Worthy, honorable, and perfectly self enlightened. Was the blessed Buddha. Indeed. Thank you.